Avengers, assemble. In the wake of Endgame, some were lost, others regained. They're good. What happens next? Stay tuned, true believers, as we try to find out. Peter Melnick. Graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. Ready? It's time for a new episode of The Marvelists. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode and introducing our very special guest, I want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on them, our social media. And returning, too, so please, go ahead. First off, go on Facebook at facebook.com slash... The Marvelists. Go on Twitter and Instagram at... The Marvelists. Follow us on all those social media channels. You can also find us on individual social media platforms, Myself on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Peter Malnick Podcaster. Twitter and Instagram at Peter Malnick. And like Reckless Eric said in his 1980s hit pop punk song, Whole Wide World. The only place in the whole wide world you can find E. Wilson is on Instagram. He really didn't put that in the song, but on Instagram at Eddie9193. You can also find us on a wide variety of streaming platforms, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, etc., etc., be sure to check those out, and they're all available for all iOS and Android devices. And, of course, of course, you can go on iTunes where you can rate, review, subscribe, and let the world know you're listening. Share it on social media channels. Sorry, I'm having a little bit of burping because I just downed an energy drink. But mm-hmm. when you're on iTunes, rate, review, subscribe, five-star if you're ever, 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 ever so inclined. Reclined. Or Tom Klein. Declined. But... Eddie, today's episode, we are joined on the other end of the tin cannon string with Jeremy Bagley. He's returning to this here fine podcast. That's right. And we give you, for your consideration, the Jeremy. And Hey, guys. All- what's going on? See, thank you um, for coming in. All right. Peter, we're done I, with the uh, intro there. So, what are you up to? Uh, I showed up at the studio, and nobody was there. Did something happen? You don't mean here. But the one in Paramus, these instructions are completely wrong, Peter. <gasps> Where were you trying to send me? Uh, parts unknown. Can't blame me for that now. It's Part a pleasure a to be back a. here. I believe this is uh, the fourth time, so uh, the ratings for this show should go right in the toilet. Uh, just keep it consistent. That's all we ask. <laughs> Consistency is what the Marvelists are about, and we're continuing doing something that we technically have not done since 2019, and that's a book club episode. Mm. And if you remember last year, we did a pilot episode for this, and then we just forgot about doing another one. But this episode is going to be a continuation of last year's book club. We did a Fantastic Four one, and, well, Fantastic Four is known for the introduction of two characters in the Marvel Universe. This big guy with a grand Pumbaa from the Flintstones hat named Galactus, and this silver guy wrapped in tinfoil. You might know him by the name of the Silver Surfer. Galactic Glaze. Yeah. That's what it says in the Silver Surfer Jeremy, Black. Is that one of those uh, top five terms on uh, that website? It is. Um, it really stinks. I thought we were researching Silver Sulfur, so it really smells in my home office right now. Oh, no. That vent when you need it. So this episode, we're talking Silver Surfer Parable, and it's a two-part miniseries from Marvel Comics in 1987. Eight. I believe. 19, 1988, sorry. 1988, and one of the things about this miniseries, first off, is it's one of the final times Stanley wrote The Silver Surfer, and it's illustrated by legendary French artist Mobius. Mobius, who you might know for his work in various French comics. He did, I believe, the uh, last Inco, uh, Inco, I-N-C-A-L, so however I botched that pronunciation, mm-hmm. well, take it up with your local congressman. But, as I accidentally said, congressman instead. So, mm-hmm. here we are. I'm on a roll. Maybe it's a Kaiser. Who it's knows? The, it's the drink. Uh, but, Maybe it's a baguette. Yeah, it's a French artist. Uh-huh. <laughs> we. Bomb voyage. Monsieur Incroyable. And Incrediboy. As I yell at Eddie off mic about don't do anything to offend the French listeners. What do I do? Well, here we are. Sacre bleu. 
Don't Chicken cordon bleu. No. <laughs> I tell you what, one of my wife's best dishes. Now, in regards to Silver Surfer with all of this, one of the things that is a fun fact about this is Stan Lee was pissed off at Marvel after offering a Silver Surfer comic to someone that wasn't him in, I believe, 1989. The success of this series ended up resulting in, like I said, a renewed interest in the character. You end up having, what's his name, uh, the musician who did the album Surfing with the Alien. Eddie, what's that called? Joe Satriani. Joe Satriani released that album, and what is on the cover? The Silver Surfer. And, like I said, there was a massive interest in the character, and what got me thinking about this is, well, as a result, people are going to be wanting to read more Silver Surfer. And after a while, the only way you can really read Silver Surfer is through reprints or actually paying top dollar for those Silver Surfer issues or Fantastic Four ones where he appears in. So instead of doing that, Marvel decided, you know what, we'll bring the Silver Surfer back in the main Marvel Universe in an ongoing title, which up until right before Jim Starlin got back on board, that series sucked. But I digress. And one of the things about that is with that series going on, Stan Lee was pissed because if you ever noticed, every time there was a Silver Surfer series or a mini series or a one shot, it was primarily only written by Stan Lee. The John Byrne, uh, I believe, Tom Palmer, although don't quote me on that one, but it is John Byrne doing the art, written by Stan Lee. You have the 12 or 17 issue series in the 1970s with the John Buscema art written by Stan Lee. You have the 19, late 1970s Fireside book with art by Jack Kirby and inked by Joe Sinnott written by Stan Lee. So Stan had a very strong affinity for this character that he helped birth, not literally. Yes. But he was pissed that they gave it to somebody else because he wanted to be the only one to write the character. And that's the end of that story. I was just thinking that my first um, knowing of the Silver Surfer came about in the reprint title, Fantasy Masterpieces. Jeremy, yourself? Uh, my first experience with Silver Surfer uh, was probably around, ooh, I'm embarrassed to say it, but I think it was around 91 or 92. I didn't really get into Silver Surfer too much until I uh, wanted to follow... Um, I really like Ron Lim's art in the uh, Infinity Gauntlet, and I was like, all right, let me uh, follow this guy around a little bit. And I kind of backed my way into uh, really becoming a huge Silver Surfer fan just based off of the connection between the writers and artists of the original Infinity Gauntlet and obviously the continuing um, Silver Surfer series. So I kind of picked up in the mid-30s in the original Silver Surfer uh, run, of his own series and uh, kind of worked my way backwards through the catalog. So. Well, I was thinking wow. in getting ready for this too, how much more Silver Surfer could I try and grab and read up to now? I, I, a couple of things I, I did read. Like you said, Peter, the Stanley Jack Kirby Silver Surfer book, and that was quite, quite, and like it said, ultimate cosmic experience. Quite lengthy, hundred over 100 pages, and very, very good. Um, read the Silver Surfer Black. Oh, go ahead. I read the Silver Surfer Black series. And there's just so many, you know, like you hinted at, if not directly stated, so many different smaller runs, miniseries of this character. I don't recall if any other have had so many like that. And then that big, long 145-issue run, which was, I guess, at that point, they were volume three, I think they're cataloging as, which definitely is something to be to be gotten to. And even I had good fortune to pick up a couple of those Wizard Marvel combination, you know, issue number one-half and and I got one from the late 90s where he meets up with a, a green-horned and green-skinned character as Wine well. Purple People Eater? Simpira, which, which talks about him having feelings for Alicia Keys. Alicia Bridges. No, Alicia. Blind Alicia oh. Masters. That, <laughs> I just went off on an Alicia tangent. So sorry. Because it was thought that uh, Ben Grimm, the thing, was deceased, but actually not. And I didn't even know he was sick. See? I didn't either. I'm like, where did this come from? And also the, the Wizard and Top Cow uh, run on 
Devil's Reign, bringing him into that. So I'm just at the beginning of that little run. So, so many different things that he's been in. And I'm just seeing how, you know, of course, from the origin of Silver Surfer, his planet of Zenla, and his love shall abound that he had to leave behind and so on. And then him, surprisingly to me, having some kind of feeling for Alicia Masters. And then in the Silver Surfer book with Ardina, I'm like, this guy's getting around. What the heck? Eddie, you said Shalabal? Is that yes. a Three Dog Night song? No, Shambhala. Let's get it right here. <laughs> and return, But Return to Shalabal is one of the Joe Satriani songs on his CD, yes. Surfing and with the Alien. one of the other things that I highly recommend, obviously we're going to be recommending this book. This is one of the most solid stories involving Silver Surfer, and quite frankly, it's one of Stan Lee's better books he's ever written, to the point where... You read old-school Stan Lee stuff, and it has stilted dialogue. This kind of does in some parts, but it feel, I feel like this was done, of course, using the Marvel method, but edited heavily, even Stan's parts. Like, Stan wrote the book, and then they immediately edited and made it less stilted, which, again, is quite an accomplishment when you consider Stan's writing sometimes. Well, what they didn't make it less of, I think, was more the thing I came out of it with. Not only is the title Parable, but, yeah, it's got serious religious overtones, I think, on a broader scale. Oh, yeah, that's the point of it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, real quick, going back over to just the whole aspect of all these different runs of the character. Deep, well, not really a deep cut, but a high recommend from me, strong recommend, even, mm is the Dan Slott Mike Allred run. And there's two runs of it. It starts off originally in the Marvel Point One Now series, and it branches off in its own... It's very own series. And what I really like about it is, as a big fan of Doctor Who, it's pretty much a Doctor Who comic from Marvel. And, you know, back in the 70s, 80s, they had Doctor Who in, like, you know, random reprints of the British comic. But this is... Doctor Who superfan Dan Slott going off on his own, and Do- uh, Silver Surfer is a stand-in for the Doctor, and it's just phenomenal writing, amazing-looking art, and it's certainly a cosmic trip, no pun intended. Yeah, I'm And sure. it's just one of the best series that a lot of people slept on, and this is another one of those series, Silver Surfer Parable, that not, it's not really lost the time, but not a lot of people talk about it in regards to importance of comics. And it is a very important comic because you end up taking a character that was developing a following over the decades. Like in 1960s, 1970s, that character was heavily picked up by the counterculture movements and was heavily featured in a lot of paraphernalia and just different things like that. And he was, you know, a favorite of intellectual scholars and people like that. Mm-hmm. And as a result, the character was highly praised. And it was only fitting to have one of the most influential French artists and European artists in general, Mobius, work on the character alongside Stan the Man. Definitely, I think, a one-time collaboration. I don't know that they've done any other things together, you know what I mean? Mobius has not worked much with Stan. That was the only encounter. But Mobius did a ton of pinups. He did like a ton of different, you know, just various art involving Marvel characters, one of which was a random shot of the Punisher. And it's this cool-looking shot with him holding this futuristic-looking gun. But they've actually started re-releasing them, all of the art, one, they ended up using, I think, for Spider-Man number 800, one of the shots of Spidey in the, you know, crouched in the shadows. And then a skate company just started re-releasing all of the art as T-shirts, as skateboard decks, just all sorts of different you know, merchandise. And it's so cool to see because it shows the importance of an artist like Mobius who, like I said, you look through his art, it's absolutely gorgeous. And there's a lot of big influences that he helped create with his work. You know, you look at like the movie like Ridley Scott's Blade Runner and the technology utilized in that, there is a big Mobius influence in there that you can tell. Especially with how he draws technology and how he would create, you know, these random glop glops and whatnot. <laughs> 
Mm. Not to mention gloops. Yeah, you know, he would have done some more um, surfer stuff, but he got bored. That's what it could come down to. Well, what it comes down to with this story, like a lot of other Silver Surfer stories, it's Galactus wants to eat Earth. That's the that's the, the crux, maybe the starting point, like a lot of other ones. But this is different because people don't know how to interpret what's happening. It's doomsday, end of the world. Uh, but then somebody says, oh, no, Galactus will save us. Here comes this evangelist who wants to uh, use this to his, own, to his own purpose. And we can start breaking it down. Jeremy's got, I think... Notes like I would take for reviewing one of the Marvel movies. As long as yeah, you know, scene by um, scene, line by line. Parts of the story is uh, you got to kind of put it into the context of where it takes place. So it's uh, the late '80s in New York City. Um, I think that not unlike times right now, certainly different. Um, you know, you've got a disease rampaging across the you know the uh, New York metropolitan area, and I think sometimes. That, that can be a metaphor for a lot of the things that we see in stories. And, uh, you know, the, the perfect environment for, um, you know, uh, demagogues and, um, and dictators to kind of pop up and, and have their voices heard is in times when uh, we're at our most panicked. And so I think you take New York City in the, the mid to late 80s and you've got the, the AIDS crisis, um, you know, impacting that city along with San Francisco and L.A. very highly. Uh, you've got a mayor in Ed Koch who's coming up at the end of his third term, and he was very big on um, kind of empowering police officers to kind of not, I wouldn't, you know, directly say rough handle uh, homeless people, but they certainly were uh, um, moving homeless people out of major eyesight areas and getting them out of, uh, out of view so that they could draw more tourism downtown. So uh, I think some of those real-life scenarios were definitely in their minds when they uh, were writing parables. And that is just where I am on, like, it's page five of the first book, where we find the Silver Surfer is dressed like a bum. You don't know it's him because he's all covered in clothing and hat, and his surfboard is wrapped up in cloth. And, yeah, some officers are trying to move him out from where he is. It kind of reminds me of a little bit of the uh, reintroduction of Namor into the main Marvel Universe yep. in the 1960s with Silver Surfer. Or a fantastic force. Except for and, that facial hair. <laughs> yeah, you know, nothing to burn it off. But yeah. one of the things I also realized about this beginning with the Silver Surfer and the reaction of Galactus, you can tell this is not in the main Marvel 616 universe because there's no mention of a Fantastic Four. This is, in their eyes, the first time seeing Galactus. So it's a completely new universe, new story, not part of the main continuity, its own separate thing, which I really like because the way Stan does it, he introduces Galactus as this big threat that's quote-unquote never been seen, but yet, you know, the characters existed for 20-something years at this point. And again, they made this as a part of the Epic line, which Epic was Marvel's independent creator line where you could use your, you know, your own character. Like Walt Simonson put in his, uh, he had a series, I forgot, it's Star Something. Not Star Jammers, but Star uh, Blasters yeah, or something. Star Blasters sounds very close to, yes, if not the exact title, right? But all these independent titles, like essentially it's Image Comics before Image Comics. You know, creator own, you can do your own thing. And you have, you know, artists like Sergio Aragones using Gru the Barbarian. Mm. You have, uh, what else? Just, again, all these different books. You have the iconic Japanese anime slash manga Akira getting serialized in Epic's, you know, own independent line with first ever, by the way, computer coloring. This is very rare, you know, especially then. But <clears throat> Marvel's Epic line is one of those big deals in comics that, I, again, I don't think many people realize is of, you know, massive importance at the time. And like I said, these stories, this one especially, they're all written and designed, one, standalone, very condensed universe stories. And on the other side, they're adult stories. And I'm not just saying, you know, hey, let's see a booby. No, these are stories in the sense of serious storylines, very adult subject matter, and 
just like they used to say with amazing adult fantasy back in the uh, 60s, mm-hmm. they're not to insult your intelligence. That's right. right. They're being written. Uh, side, side note, author's note, whatever, Star Slammers. There we go. Thank Star you. Star Slammers, nice. Yep. I had a couple did, of Peter, did you pod. use the word boobies? No, just yes, one. I did. Oh, okay. It was either boobies or titties, but with a T-I double T-I. <laughs> it would have been a great D-I-E. title for Silver Surfer. It could have been Silver Surfer pair of boobs. What book club are we yeah. on here now? What? Dear Penthouse. <laughs> but <laughs> Jeremy, pick it up yep. from where the action left off. <laughs> well, what I think is uh, in your um, to kind of you know. Um, Back up what you're saying here about uh, adult-oriented stories. What I like about this parable, too, is that it's a tale of relationships. Uh, there's the relationship, obviously, between the Silver Surfer and Galactus. And, well, you're right, it does present itself as this is the first time he's coming to this world and is disconnected from Fantastic Four stories. Uh, they don't write it like the reader shouldn't know anything about Galactus and Silver Surfer, because, you know, uh, when... Surfer finally does confront Galactus in the story. He does remind him of his vow to never come back to Earth, you know, and to uh, to leave it alone. And so there is, you know, there are some callbacks to the history of their relationship together, even though it's not. The story doesn't seem like it's certainly part of the main Marvel universe. Yeah, because that, that sense I get of we don't, you know, you look at the people's reaction to Galactus, and they're just in awe, like, I've never seen this before. What do you mean, this is like last Tuesday? That's why I've always found, one of my favorite things about the main Marvel Universe that I always laugh about is, you have characters that are in disbelief that there is a Dracula running around, and yet you have Scott Summers running around shooting laser beams out of his eyes, but that's plausible. And there's just so much. You have the ever-loving blue-eyed thing. I think once you have that character you throw all suspension of disbelief out the window. So to watch, like I said, watching these characters act like, oh, that's not possible. Why? Yeah, and not to get too far off or down this trail, but I think um, that'll be fun to see how future MCU Marvel movies play out as if, you know, when you get the reaction from the, the, the innocent bystanders or the general population, I'd love to see it in a Spider-Man movie because the the students that he's, you know, going to school with are so interconnected to the story. Just how they start to react to all these different level threats. You know, who's who's going to have to show up, you know, on Earth in order for it to top, you know, that big giant ship from Thanos, you know, where somebody from New York is like, eh, we survived coronavirus and Thanos. Who's, who's Galactus? Flipping through some of the pages, too, and seeing how more... Significance and you know along the lines of what you're saying, Jeremy, uh, confronting him. But the people seem to know have seen Silver Surfer before, and even uh, you know uh, if I didn't notice it before, the line that the Surfer makes about the people and truly they know not what they do, as one thing. But apparently Galactus is changing his mind because the hunger is so great, and if he has to kill the Surfer to get what he wants, so be it. Now what happens on the next panel? <laughs> Uh, it does feel like uh, Galactus is trying to be almost cute in this um, story. Like, he replies to the Silver Surfer, hey, you know, I, I'm i not here to try to eat Earth. You know, the, the, the humans are doing a good enough job destroying it. I'm just standing here. Because really what happens when Galactus arrives is that he's almost seen as a god figure. And that kind of takes down the, all the, cons- the traditional constructs. So I think it would very... You look how the world's reacting to coronavirus, and, you know, we haven't devolved into this dystopian Mad Max world yet, um, and hopefully we don't, depending on when you're listening to this. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the way that people react in this, I, I, you see it play over time and time again in crises, and that's uh, a loud voice steps up to be heard, and whenever we, if, if this happened now, if in the middle of what we're going through right now, some giant 80-foot alien came and had all these powers and basically told us he was God, we would kind of probably believe it. And it would it creates a power vacuum and everything you think you know uh, goes away. And I think that they're, the, the whole point of Colton 
is to to the evangelical is to show that that he says, all right, well, this guy's here. What's the next best thing to being the most powerful being on the planet? Well, being connected to that, mm. you know, being an advocate for it, being the pope to to a uh, to an actual manifestation of a god I can see. So, um, you know, it's just a, a really. It's, it, you, I went back and read this in the last couple of days, and it really resonated to me with how things are right now. I agree, and to the point of you know, towards the end of that first of the two issues where he's even turned, if his own sister isn't going to subscribe to what he is believing, then she should be just ostracized, taken away, and I just think that Colton is out for himself. Absolutely. And one of the things about the first issue compared to the second one, by the way, that really, you know, kind of caught me off guard, the first issue is a lot shorter than the second And... I'm curious to why that was, because the first issue alone is only 18 pages. 18. Compare that to the other one, I believe the other one is double the size. Why would they do a decision like that? It was the advertising. Is there advertising in the uh, print copy? Because I was doing it through digital, through uh, Marvel. Yeah, um, there, there is, and the pages are actually numbered. I'm not going in individually, but the last page on the first issue is actually 25. Right. But I didn't take out the ads. How did you, so you, Eddie, you read it in floppy. Jeremy, yourself? Um, I read it digitally. I, yeah, I did digital, but the one version that I did want to read of this was the oversized version. You know, to experience uh, Mobius's art, like, that's the way you want to enjoy it because Mobius was an artist who primarily he did comic art. He did, you know, the French comic art, but the way they would frame it was in magazines, like in magazine format, bigger pages compared to the confines of a comic book. And much like the grand design books that are coming out from Marvel, you know, and also the recent treasury edition of silver surfer black. I feel this is the way to experience some of these artists, this oversized, incredibly large, and I understood why they went in the comic book serialized format, but this is one of those. Do you do either of you think it could have benefited from the Marvel graphic novel style, where the 1980s they had graphic novels like New Mutants, God Loves, Man Kills, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, I and think those so. Are bigger pages. No, I think a graphic novel would have been would have been great for this too. I was going to ask when did the oversized version come out. Oversized was like, I want to say, 2012, 2013, 2014. Mm-hmm. In recent memory, I've seen it you know, in comic store shelves in the Mobius section. And again, it's one of those, I'm, I kick myself every time I you know, pass by it. Because again, yeah, I have it in physical format, the two-issue miniseries. But I'd love to see also like his original sketches of like, you know, maybe what the cover would have looked like or this or that. Because that's one of the benefits that a trade paperback or a hardcover has over the monthly issues you get like like a dvd like the bonus features you know instead of a director commentary you get the pencil sketches with little notes from the artist and writer and it's it's an experience that you know sometimes trade waiting is the better option but looking at those pages it so would have benefited from oversized yeah, I agree. I um, in reading it digitally, uh, you know, you kind of have to pinch and squeeze the the screen, and maybe it takes a little something away from it. I like digital when I want to go back and read stories that I don't want to take out of a bag or in a story that's bed boarded. And I know we're supposed to read comics, and but they are an investment to to some people. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> and and um, and so, I, but the way that uh, Mobius drew this is. Is brilliant, and while this isn't one of my favorite ways that Galactus has been written, um, I just think he comes of it comes off a little bit lame in this story. Uh, I know that's probably sacrilege, but uh, you know everyone's locked down, so good luck coming to get me. But um, <laughs> I love the way Galactus is drawn in this because he's so you get so much scale, you know, compared to buildings, and it just to your point, it lends itself to an oversized format just for the. Just for the visual alone, it's it's uh, he, he did a really good job in um, kind of capturing the physical essence of what Galactus is. I agree. This is the la- 
Well, this is like the last time of something that I noticed in the original Silver Surfer run and this one. Silver Surfer is a book where every single... Like, you look at the original run of Silver Surfer, and pages will have about four panels, limited dialogue, but they're long stories. So it takes about the same amount of time to read as like a standard Marvel comic from back then, but it's more of an emphasis on the drawings. You know? Like, you look at the John Buscema run, and it's two to four panels per page, whereas you look at, you know, what was going on at the time, the Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, Gil Kane, et cetera, et cetera. Those are maybe six to eight panels. It's kind of an interesting way of, you know, looking at how these are to be read and enjoyed and processed. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, not to take anything away from Dan, um, I'm not quite, you know, because I try to get into his stuff, that his own line of books, and I just feel like even for the greats, um, at some point, time passes by. And not that they don't, they, their writing is great for the time when they're in their prime, you know? Uh, and again, and that's not talk, to take away from anything. The guy invented more crazy, amazing things in a nap than I will in my entire life. But I, it does feel like, even at this point in the late 80s, that his writing is just dated, you know? And he was did such amazing stuff in the 60s and 70s with cultural awareness and introducing characters that we might have not otherwise seen if it hadn't been for him bringing, you know, um, uh, characters of color and, and um, you know, outsiders and freaks like the, the X-Men. And Spider-Man being a teenager in school was brilliant. Um, it just feels like at this point he's starting to still write that way. And it's almost 1990. And... Comics have kind of gone down a more darker adult road. Yeah, this is around the time of you have Frank Miller coming out with Dark Knight Returns and Batman Year One, Alan Moore coming out with Watchmen and V for Snicks on a Plane. You have all of these different series. I realize I shoehorned in Snakes on a Plane, but mm-hmm. v, v for Vendetta and stuff like that. It's one of those where it does it does seem really awkward to see a Stan Lee in that era. And he doesn't really, like, he saddled up with Mobius because Mobius was a very big deal. Up until his passing, one of the most iconic and influential creators, to the point where, even towards the end of his life, was putting out amazing art. And Stan wanted to saddle up. And like, hey, hey, true believers, let me do this with this French guy. Hey, baguette. Anyway, but it's that, and you just you have you just that. talked about bread, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. But the great seventies band. Not bad. Uh, <laughs> Baby, I'ma want you. Thank you, Eddie. But the guitar man. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but in regards to that, you know, you have Stan wanting to saddle up with this great artist. And it just does, like, again, his writing, compared to what he's done in around that time, you know, look at Ravage 2099, and then look at Silver Surfer Parable. The Silver Surfer book is better by leaps and bounds. Oh, yeah. But there, I, you say the dialogue doesn't work that well. My initial reading of this back in, I think, 2013 or 2014, I was blown away by it in the sense of, damn, this holds up really well. But it does have a little bit of a clunkiness to it in certain lines. But in regards to the pacing and overall story of it, I do think it works in getting its point across. And uh, go ahead. No doubt. Mm-hmm. But not to but it, it is standing on soapbox. Um, it's got a. It's a great. Again, it's a parable, and it's 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 a story that holds up throughout time. Uh, no doubt about it. It's powerful to read. Again, it, it brought me, um, that story back in 88 brought me into 2020 and said, hey, this is relatable. Again, it's just the dialogue. Um, I mean, one of the plot points is the, the evangelist sister uh, is trying to fly a helicopter into Galactus. I mean, what is it with Marvel and helicopters? Does got a, Thanos has one. You know, Hell yeah, he the does. Only thing, the only thing that wasn't Odd was that her initials weren't on the side of it. <laughs> Wait a minute, did I miss something there? Hold on. Deadpool, it's me, Thanos. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, it's just oh, it, again. I'm I'm not trying to, you know, uh, I got nothing but respect for the guy. Yeah, and the story is amazing and timeless. Again, it's just it's starting to bleed into where, you know, the the dialogue and the way people talk um, doesn't quite match up with society. You know, and maybe it was mm-hmm. done that way on purpose, and maybe that you know they were supposed to kind of. Um, you know, be a, a different version of Earth, but it just, it, I just felt like people didn't talk that way. You know, it's like, hey, you rapscallion, you know, what are you doing up yeah. there? And it's kind of funny because you look at a lot of those writers and creators, and they obviously have their influences on, you know, you look at like an Alan Moore, who I'm, I was listening to an interview with Rob Liefeld talk about, you know, him working alongside Alan and how he was a big Tarantino fan. And a lot of, you could tell, like, later on, like, some of the way Alan would write had a very big influence on the, you know, with the films he was watching at the time. And I think Stan, you know, again, doesn't have his finger on the pulse of pop culture. He's still in 1950-something, 1940-something, and he's relating to the way movies and television were written back then. And it's very evident with some of the stilted dialogue. And, like... You look at an Alan, or not Alan Moore, like a Frank Miller as well, who you can tell the influence of 1950s, 1960s, 1970s even, crime films, and just that, you know, the film noir style of, it's more of the action than the dialogue. Right. And, and I, it, it holds up uh, in certain aspects, too. I love the, um, just the kind of really... Like one of the underlying tones here is um, attempting things and and fighting against overwhelming odds. And there was a section in there where uh, the surfer is attempting to uh, diffuse Colt in there from kind of you know allowing humanity to he's preying on humanity for his own gain. And the sister there, Ileana, he's talking with her and. You know, she starts to see things the surfer's way, but she also doesn't think that he's got a snowball's chance in Hades of being able to to, to defeat Galactus. And the yeah. surfer doesn't think so either. You know, but he says, um, in failure, there's no disgrace. You know, mm-hmm. um, there can only be one ultimate shame, uh, the cowardice of not having tried. And I think that that's a really good, you know, kind of undertone for this whole thing, or one of the undertones for this whole thing is that, you know, in every uh, crisis, in every conflict, in every war, uh, there are people who fight and die. And um, that doesn't mean that their fight, you know, because they're dead or they didn't succeed, or, but they tried. And that ended up giving inspiration to others to, to make that same risk. And I think that that's what the Silver Surfer is trying to do here is to say, all right, I might not succeed here, but I will stand up to him, and if I fail, then maybe this will inspire others to not just simply, you know, cowtail to his, you know, um, this overwhelming presence and actually try to fight him, too. And I, I think that, you know, there's a certain amount of martyrdom there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no question. To that point, though, Jeremy, it does make sense, then, that it had to be written in that she would die from the crash of the copter, but before that having been wounded, being shot, uh, and the surfer trying to save her, but being blasted by Galactus, and then it took that act of her sacrificing, essentially, for Colton to realize and turn against who he was believing in, which was Galactus, and he didn't do anything to save his sister. Right, and it also... uh was kind of cool too because you know this is one of the first times uh, what we're going through right now uh, and our previous um, you know recent wars are really the first time that they these things have been broadcast into people's homes you know the um, Spanish flu in the nineteen late nineteen teens television wasn't around then um, we're getting to see things in real time maybe to uh, uh, you know the, the the downfall of ourselves that were over, uh, you know, inundated with these images. But this is part of the story here, is that all of this, this battle that um, Galactus is having with the Silver Surfer that's wrecking half of Midtown, you know, New York City, 
this stuff is all being seen, and people are starting to formulate their own opinions. And it really takes, um, you know, like a child says something to their parents about, you know, maybe this God isn't exactly who we think he is because he's willing to destroy half of what we have, but he told us at the beginning that he was here to save us. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, an opportunity for, you know, us to kind of put that into our own time, too, is that we don't necessarily now have to believe everything that we're told about how things are going, because there's so many devices out there and voices and outlets, and we probably have over-information. But at least we're able to, some of us, compile enough pieces of it to form our own opinion and not just be told what we need to think. The uh, description that you said before, Jeremy, about about the way Galactus behaves and stuff, uh, we've seen a scene, just like in this parable tale, where he encases the surfer in between his hands and says the line, he says, the surfer shall soar no more, and then realizes what's happening, I guess, with with the uh, earthly air squadron attacking, and he says, you know what, killing you isn't going to do me any good, so here, go, surfer, and I'm out of here. When he puts surfer in his hands, I was hoping he'd go with, this is the church, this is the steeple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, all those people. Everyone's not allowed to go anywhere. <laughs> and, again, I think we'll, we'll start to wrap this up, but one of the things about this book that's so timeless, again, you know, we've discussed ad nauseum the uh, writing. From a visual standpoint, this might be one of the strongest Marvel comics to ever be put out, especially during that time. You know, you have Bill Sienkiewicz on New Mutants, you have Jim Lee on X-Men, and you it's just, its it comes in at a time where comics are kind of, it's, it's rare when they're experimental and something unique. This comes along and it is a, just an explosion of a moment in comics. And it's def- it's definitely there as something that caught a lot of people's attention. Yeah, well, I, think, I think I'll make the last point about the end of this two-part story is that the people are now honoring the surfer by having him speak in front of a bunch of microphones, and now he could be their leader, and and he's thinking to himself, and then he's coming out and saying, well, sure, I could lead you, but this is what you got to do. And knowing that... They're not going to go for it. So he ultimately resigns. And talk to the UN. Talk, yeah, talks him into, talks him out of saying, you know, you don't want me to be your leader, to be your God, and I will forever, you know, roam the stars alone. And then he fought nuclear man in outer space. But, There's a great scene in the end here where Colton, after all of his kind of manipulations and machinations and other Asians, uh, is trying to. Um, maybe he's kind of come, the death of his sister has kind of impacted him, and we all change uh, through the course of heavy life events happening to us. Um, but he says, as the surfer's kind of flying away, and it shows a, a few panels of the crowd getting progressively bigger, he says, uh, you could have been a god. You threw it all away just for us, and that's the tragedy of it. We don't deserve it. Yeah, I'm looking right at it, yep. And I think that that's very much, again, I keep going back to it, but it, it, it harkens today is that um, every time someone steps up with a, a voice, uh, whether it be, um, you know, different dictators throughout history or politicians or, um, you know, people pointing a finger at somebody else and saying, the whole reason that you're suffering right now is because of these people over here. Let's get them or let's get rid of them. And people fall for it every flippin' time. And this story is no different in that every time somebody speaks out against Galactus, they're branded as, uh, you know, a heretic and somebody who, you know, needs to have a letter stamped on them and, you know, sent off to be hung. And it, it's not that far off from the way things are, is that we are a species that tends to need to have uh, we we want to be free, and we want to be able to do what we want to do, but we need strong leadership. And, and Surfer says they, thir- they thirst for leadership as a child thirsts for mother's milk. You know, we need to have a, a strong figure. We 
put so much of uh, who we think we are as Americans into the, the president of the United States, even though we're, you know, we have a, uh, a three branches of government. And we just, we just do that as, as people, you know. That's one of our things is that we like to anoint an alpha, and then as soon as we can, we like to tear them down and put a new alpha up. Mm-hmm. You know, half the fun and the whole thing is to, to tear the person back down again after they make a mistake. And it, that plays out here in this uh, very much in detail. You know, they go right from Galactus leaving, that Surfer must be stronger, so Surfer's the guy, you know. They just want somebody there, and, and I think that it lends itself very much to uh, the ease that demagogues and dictators are able to take advantage of crises, get themselves into power, and convince society and, and the people in it that they should be there. And anybody who doesn't agree with that is is now, you know, the finger gets pointed at them now. Yeah, on the wrong side. I totally agree. I mean, it's just hell of a story in two issues. Yeah. So well, I, I think some of the dialogue is a little bit dated again, and that's not a heavy criticism. You know, I've been here for I've been talking to a cat for forty five days, so maybe I'm a little bit picky. Um, but <laughs> the the story in of itself is timeless, and I think that uh, people could be talking about it fifty years from now, and it, it could apply to you know hopefully nothing major, but whatever crises people are going through fifty years from now. Shout out to Megatron. You end up taking the uh, Mark Twain of comics and pairing him alongside. Who would you who would you uh, compare Mobius to, uh, Jeremy? I don't know, maybe like a Banksy type of a guy in a certain type of way. You know, there's not some mystery to it, but trendy artist that you kind of want to do something with. Yeah, it, it feels like that, but it's like like I said, you know, I don't think I've ever heard him called that, but I'll I'll stick with that for myself, but. Stan Lee was the Mark Twain of comics. And, you know, of course, is everything going to be perfect that Mark Twain wrote? Oh, hell no. But, and, you know, a lot of it does not hold up today, but it's still influential and very important work for its time, and that's what Stan's work was. And, again, this was, this was up there as one of Stan's favorite things he ever wrote. And... Again, for good reason. And, like, again, we keep hammering it in, but it's like, you know, the stilted dialogue, not that great, but the overall story itself is phenomenal. And could it have done with better dialogue? Sure. But it's very much a great piece, and this is the character that Stan wanted to utilize whenever he had the opportunity that he wanted to make a point, make a, you know make a statement that he feels with the world. And that's what I like about it. And again, yeah. Amazing stuff. Silver Surfer is a great character for Stan Lee. I mean, if you look at all the characters that are in that kind of vein, um, everybody lost something, right? You know, so Peter Parker loses his uncle and he doesn't really know his parents at the beginning. And, um, yeah, everybody loses something here, but the Silver Surfer lost his entire world, you know, and his identity as a person. And now he, the the thing that he has to do now is to go and do to other planets what he didn't want to have happen to his, you know. Yeah. So he loses everything, and now his entire mission in life is to go do that to other pe- to other planets. And I think that that maybe that's part of the reason why. It resonated so well with Stan because, you know, who suffered more than, than the Silver Surfer has to become who he is? And there's a lot of, you know, what Stan Lee wrote that was a, was a comparison, a parallel to his life. You know, you have his wife in the form of Gwen Stacy, and when they killed off Gwen, he was pissed, like genuinely pissed. And you have stuff like that, and then you have, you know, his own personal fears, probably. You look at Silver Surfer losing his home world of Bonnaroo or Shambhala or Lollapalooza, and you have that happen, and that stands own personal fear. You know, you, losing his home, losing his freedom, losing the one he loves. He doesn't want that to happen, and he reflects that in his own writing with the Surfer. Shout out to our editor, John, for... So there's not a lot of storylines that can um, 
can stand the test of time. And this little two-issue parable, uh, again, uh, it more than stands the test of time. It's a story you can tell over and over again and have it hold up decades from now. And I have to put in uh, two cents and give a kudos where kudos are due, and that is to Peter, who told me, you know, you should try to find and get those two books. And I remember doing that a couple of so years ago, and I remember where. It was at the uh, Hudson Valley Comic Con, and that's how I yeah. how I came to it and eventually read it. I was surprised you never had Peter's it. Peter's full of a place. lot of stuff, and it's not usually good ideas, so <laughs> I like it. How dare you, sir? Someone's got it. I didn't even know you were sick. This yes. is a solid recommendation on my behalf for this. If you have the ability to check it out, go to Amazon, order it through there, or you know, support your local comic shop if they have an online store. Uh, you can also find it on Comixology or the Amazon Kindle store. I think they have it as a collection where it has all the bonus stuff. But if you're feeling a little thrifty at that moment, mm. we, first off, we also don't know if this is going to be on sale the week, you know, the Comixology sale. But you can get each individual issue digitally, I believe, for three, two to three dollars an issue. Or you can get the collected one with all the bonus material. Or... If you're like me and you have a Marvel Unlimited account, check it out on there. It's Silver Surfer Parable, 1988 in the alphabetical category. And like I said, I solidly recommend this book. Still holds up phenomenally. Just, you know, from an art and storytelling standpoint, again, dialogue, eh. But it's visually pleasing. Jeremy, yourself? Uh, highly recommended. I enjoyed going back and, and reading it. Uh... Not only for the visuals, but also, it, well, I've taken shots at the dialogue. It, it actually it takes you back to a different time of, of comics writing. Um, anytime you can put Stan Lee together with a great artist, um, you know, magic and universes get built. So uh, this wasn't by any stretch disappointing. Certainly one of my uh, favorite Stan Lee stories. And uh, like I said, over and over again, it's going to stand the test of time. Eddie? And having read other a couple of other things in comparison, they, they're, I don't know, about on equal footing, I guess, for the time that they were written. But a solid story. I really enjoyed it. I would go back and read it again. The toughest part for me, having read the, the actual physical book form, was the, the font, the lettering style, was in some spots the letters were thicker and some spots they were thinner. So it, it was almost resembling like some of the letters were half rubbed out or faded. But but still... Those letters, they were lettered, I believe, by Mobius himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, De- but so definitely, and it was the first time I was seeing it that way, so maybe that was a matter of adjusting to it, but uh, recommend it for sure. It's one of those books that you see an artist like Mobius come over and do a major big two character. It comes out so far out of left field, it would be like Robert Crumb working on, you know, a random book for DC. Again, stranger things that happen, you know, you, you have these quote-unquote indie darlings, in regards to the world of comics. Back in the day, Harvey Picard, the guy who was responsible for one of my all-time favorite comic book series, American Splendor, he was offered the ability to write Howard the Duck. And, you know, that boy from Cleveland, Ohio, working on the Duck from Cleveland, Ohio, it's one of those things that you wouldn't expect to see happen. But again, that didn't happen. But Mobius, on the other hand, got to play in Marvel Sandbox. And it's one of those things. It would be like in modern times now, seeing Ed Pisker, you know, acclaimed for books like WYSIWYG and Hip Hop's Family Tree, working on a Marvel book, an X-Men title. You just don't see it happening. Or like, again, another name, like maybe a Daniel Klaus working over at DC. This doesn't happen, but it could. So I think that about wraps this episode up, gentlemen. Jeremy, thank you so much for your time today. Just like Galactus, I'm out of here. So, Jeremy, before we go, how can people get a hold of you on social media? Uh, I am on Twitter at Jeremy J. Bagley, and I also can be found at Facebook.com. I host a Thursday night uh, quiz show while we're all quarantined. Usually give out cash and prizes. Um, It runs a little blue, so if you uh, like to... Uh, watch quiz shows with your kids. Uh, don't watch this one with them. Uh, but you can find us at uh, facebook.com slash Bagley's Bad Bandwidth Trivia. And the bandwidth is horrible, 
Um, but uh, we're working on it, and that's part of the charm is that it's kind of a, just a thrown together. But uh, we have a lot of fun. Some categories are like uh, close-ups of things under a microscope, and WTF is that. Um, we play uh, Name That Drunk, and um, we also do, uh, we guess, based on mugshots, what the crime the person was accused of, and people more often than not get it. So those are the two ways you can get a hold of me, and stay safe, everyone. We're one day closer to being all back together again. For The Marvelous, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Jeremy Bagley. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior! Continuing with our guest, Jeremy Bagley, for the, what, fourth time, I think. Obsessed with Marvel? Gentlemen is taking a break. There is a different source. (gasps) Feast your ears. This comes from a January issue of 1984 of the newspaper magazine-ish Amazing Heroes. And it's more than just Marvel. (gasps) Again. It's the comic book trivia quiz. Ten questions. I have the answers. I feel like the Grandmaster. So, who were Charles Xavier's parents? And there are no there's multiple guests. Mar- there's got to be a Martha in this. Bet, there is no Martha in this. I don't know, but uh, one of them was uh, their ex-husband. Well, their their the last name is Xavier. We know that. That's from what I'm looking at as far as the answer goes. I so. would hope so. I don't even know when we knew who the names of the parent of the parents parents were. So, Brian, these are not multiple choice, correct? These are not. These are just. You got to answer the question. You got to know who that. This is going to be a great swing and a miss segment today. Yeah, that's that's what it is. It's just a throw up, change up, or just throw up. Uh, I'm going to guess his dad was Xavier Roberts, the creator of Cabbage Patch Kids. I'm going to go with Generiquai Xavier for the father. (laughs) Got to be a Martha in there, right? What? There's got there's got to be a Martha in there, right? Everyone's name. Mom's name Martha. You know what? Yes, let's go with uh, Joaquin Phoenix Xavier and <laughs> Wow, Martha Wayne Clark Xavier. Oh, I'm almost sorry I didn't go with Obsessed with Marvel here. Um, Me the, too. The answer is Brian and Sharon Xavier. I was Brian. Brian, you I got can't... nine months, and all you can come up with is Brian. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> It says just what the page says. Number two, who is the ruler of Gorilla City? Is Gorilla that uh, Gorilla Grodd? Yeah, probably, because it's more than Marvel in this. It's a one-name answer. I'm going to go with Grodd. Any other guess? Stephen Hawking. The answer is Solovar. Ah, well, shit. Okay. Number Solid bar? Sol, yeah, S-O-L-O-V-A-R. Solivar. Number three. Clark bar. I was ready Clark for Clark bar. Oh, that. Oh, yeah. Break me off a piece of that. Clark bar. Yes. Name Make the Warriors three. Peter. Um, Lady Sif? Gosh, shit. I actually know this one, too, which is the Volstagg. I'll give Volstagg his one. Yep. And then the other one is uh, the guy from Chuck. I suppose. but Vo- from Chuck, yes. But Vol- a.k.a. Shazam. <laughs> but Lady Sif is not one of the Warriors 3. Um, Volstag the Voluminous is one. Oh, you're right. The other guy was the... Um... Oh. They were all, you know, a name and Hogan. the something. Yeah, Hogan. H-U-G-U-N. Yep. Hogan. Hulk the, Hogan, yes. Hogan the Grim. And... Well, that was N.W.O. Hogan. Fandral the Dashing. Oh, yeah. That was the guy that Chuck played. That, there you go. And there was, I believe, a Marvel premiere issue of the Warriors 3, wasn't there? Sure. I believe. All right. So we're we're crushing it. We're, uh, we're, what, we were point five for three? <laughs> yeah, it's about right. Number four. We got something. We got something. We don't know what it is, but number four. Who was the Submariner's land-dwelling sweetheart during the 40s? That's a tough one. That's original stuff. Submariner land dwelling sweetheart during the forties. I think the correct answer is Submariner's land dwelling sweetheart. Mm. It's very I, on the I, It seems then. like she'd be very comfortable with semen. 
Oh, God. If I told you Crocker as a last name, what would you say as the first name? Uh, I would say first name would be Crocker F. No, no. F- I think it would be Aunt Jemima. <laughs> now, we're going for Betty as the first name. <laughs> Betty, Betty Crocker? Betty Dean is the answer. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's very close to Betty Crocker. All right, everybody, drink. <laughs> that might help. Well, me anyway. All right, number five, please. In what sort of unusual structure do Dr. Fate and his wife dwell? A pineapple under the sea. Ooh. Just think about it. Dr. Fate. What sort of unusual structure do Dr. Fate and his wife dwell? The flying nun's hat. <laughs> Dr. Fate, what does he live in? Yeah. It's, I'll tell you what it says, though. Part of it, it's windowless and doorless. A shoe. Ooh. Uh, I'm not an wrong. affordable apartment in Brooklyn? No, it's more like the <laughs> opposite. It's, it's, it's like go the opposite direction of a shoe, and it's not a hat, but it's very high. Um, Shawn Michaels underwear? <sighs> no. I, don't, I have no idea. Yes, yeah, and it's Peter's former comic book store in Newburgh, New York. A dark tower? The answer is a windowless and doorless tower. All right, Dr. Fate. Number six, who was the first member of the elite Green Lantern Corps? Sinestro. That would have been a good guess, sure. But I'm wrong, apparently. (laughs) No, yeah, correct. Correct, you are wrong. It's two names. We have no bananas. Yeah, it's it's Rory, R-O-R-I, last name Dag, D-A-G. Rory Dag. Dag, yo. Okay. Rory Dag. Oh, that sounds like... like uh, the name of somebody on NXT. So, <laughs> sure. This is 84, so I don't know. Now, number seven, of what crime is the modern Blue Beetle suspected? Um, dung rolling. Cashing bad checks. <laughs> the <laughs> uh, let's see. The modern Blue Beetle, what crime would the... Um, is he suspected? Oh, yeah, I didn't realize it was more than one, but that's, it's just me. Insecticide? You know. <laughs> All right, let's 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 stop here. Uh, the crime suspected is murdering the original Blue Beetle. Oh well, update. We do not know what happened to the original Blue Beetle. Yikes! And gets next up on unsolved mystery. Yeah. Woman in a shoe. Number eight. Who is secretly Night Witch? Yeah, I know. It's one named Night Witch. Fighter of the day, witch. Uh-huh. <laughs> Champion of the sun. Well, they give a first and a last name. The first name is another dark black type of name. Voluminous um, ball stacks. <laughs> Four letters means black. Is it Paul Bear? No. Dark? Okay. It also is, I believe, a, t- a type of um, stone. And it starts with the letter O. Opal? Opal. Opal is dark? Black? No. Well, no. black opal. Yeah. The word I'm looking for is onyx. Onyx. But the name here oh, is... Oh, my favorite hip-hop artist. Is onyx moro, M-O-R-O. That's secretly who Nightwitch is. Number nine. What is Monel's weakness? As in Cal-L, but Mon-L. M-O-N hyphen E-L. Well, let's see. So Cal L is vulnerable to a green, right? Green rock, yeah. So uh, magic? No, it's I'm another. It, it's another. And I've it, now that I and when I saw the answer, I said, "Oh yeah." And I'm trying to think who the heck Monel is, and and the weakness. But it's another naturally occurring element type of thing. Another rock, perhaps, but very heavy. Dwayne Johnson. Uh, Diamonds. Actually, no, and it blocks Superman's vision. Dwayne Johnson. Lead? Lead. That's the answer. And oh. finally, thank goodness. My favorite kind of paint to eat. <laughs> Mercifully. Number 10. How are the Son of Satan and Satana related? My the Son of Satan and college roommates. The son of Satan Yeah, what are you saying, Peter? My father's college roommate's ex. 
Uh, let's see. How about aunt and nephew? Cousins. You mean cousins? <laughs> I'll go well, cousins. no. I meant one was the nephew, the a sibling to the other's parent. Oh, you're on the right track. But it says I mean, they, if this they are was West Virginia. You'd be totally on. We- <laughs> Jesus. West Virginia. I'm going John Denver here, and all of a sudden, what the Mountain heck? Mama. <laughs> Mountain Mama. They are siblings, uh, both children of Satan by different mothers. Ah, okay. And that's the show. So you're welcome, and it's a tie.